0: Welcome to episode 3 of the State of the Universe. I hope you watched the first two. Maybe you didn't. Maybe those topics didn't interest you. Uh, I watched them back. I am my own worst critic by far, okay? You could troll me on social media, on YouTube, on Reddit, on Twitter. You could tell me my podcast is shit. You could tell me I'm a shit interviewer. Uh, but there's nothing that you could tell me that I haven't already convinced myself. And I mean that in the best possible way, right? I'm not saying I'm depressed and I'm sad and I look at everything I do and I think it's horrible. I look at everything I do I think it's horrible, but I look at it that way because I want to make it better, right? And so episode three features Daryl Treffert, Dr. Daryl Trefford, This man is uh, an expert... In the world of savant syndrome, he's a a retired psychiatrist, and he's been studying savant syndrome for 57 years. And for those of you who don't know what savant syndrome is, which I didn't shortly before interviewing him, I actually saw an article he wrote on Scientific American, and I was like, wow, this is incredibly interesting, and I would love to sit down and, and, and talk to this man about the wealth of experience he seems to have. Now, I didn't know what I was in store for. I didn't know how much this man knew. For every year he's been practicing, which is 57, this man has committed hard drives of information to his brain, to his cranium. And when you ask him a question, he just spits it all out at one time. But he doesn't do it in a way that you can't understand. Right? He's very accessible. You could tell he's very used to talking to large amounts of people, getting his ideas out there, conveying them. He's been seen on 60 Minutes, he's been seen on CBS, he's been seen on Larry King, on the Today Show, on Oprah, Discovery Channel, Dateline, CNN. This man has talked about savant syndrome and autism pretty much everywhere that is considered a major news outlet in the United States of America and even in some other countries. He's published articles in Time Magazine, People, Newsweek, USA Today, Scientific American. And what, another thing that's really impressive is he was a consultant of the 1988 film Rain Man, which featured Dustin Hoffman, and, get this, a pre-Scientology Tom Cruise. So that's going back the land before time. Tom Cruise was not a Scientologist in those early days and uh, Dr. Daryl Trefford got to consult on that film. And that film is about an autistic savant and, and the story about his life and the types of things he undergoes and experiences. And I haven't seen it, but it is considered a very good film by many critics. And one day I hope to get around to watching it. He's, the, he's published two books, Extraordinary People Understanding Savant Syndrome... And Islands of Genius, the Bountiful Mind of the Autistic, Acquired, and Sudden Savant. This man, in many cases, the experts I talk to are a vital part of the field they're in. Right? In the case of Episodes 1 and 2, both of those guests are at the top of their field. right? They're not on the Mount Rushmore, maybe, all right? but you don't always have to be on the Mount Rushmore... And also, they're both relatively young in their careers. They haven't been doing it for 57 years. So it's nothing wrong with what they're doing. And I'm not saying they're not, uh, they're not worthy of any success. I'm just saying that they're still learning. They're still growing as scientists. And they are, for all intents and purposes, near the very top of their field. But in the case of Daryl Trefford, this man is literally the top of the field. If there was a Mount Rushmore of Savant Syndrome, there would only be one face, and it would be Daryl Trefford. Or there would be four faces, and they would all be Dr. Daryl Trefford. And that would be a very interesting Mount Rushmore, and I am not sure uh, that many people would visit, visit that one. But nevertheless, we're moving on. The Trefford Center was founded in his name. It can be accessed at www.treffertcenter.com, or if you can't spell Treffert, which I don't blame you if you can't spell Treffert, there's some tricky things going on there, you can look in the description, find the website there. It is part of Agnesian Health a Hospital in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and that is a real weird name, and maybe you'd think that that would be in France, because that's what I thought, but no, it's in Wisconsin. So, I mean, I've never been to Wisconsin. But I don't really know what they're known for outside of Aaron Rodgers and Cheese. Maybe nothing else. But now you know them for something else. Daryl Treffert, the one and only, he's such a good person to interview. Because when you're trying to fine-tune your interview skills, and I'm always trying to fine-tune everything I do in my life, right? I don't think anything I do is, is perfect by any means. He's such a good person to talk to because... You can ask him a question. That question might not even be that good. I think that in the first two episodes, maybe I didn't ask good enough questions. In this episode, I do feel like I asked some good questions. But also, even if I asked a shitty question, Daryl would run with it. And he'd run with it forever. And he would expand on so many ideas in the process. And he would get back to answering my original question after 25 minutes. And I love that about someone I'm interviewing. Because he's just able to go, and go, and go, and go. And that's just what happens when you're at the top of the game, right? If you ask Usain Bolt tips on how to run fast, the man could probably talk for a couple hours. If you ask LeBron James on uh, tips on how to be a great basketball player, the man could go for hours. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you have any concerns, any questions about savant syndrome, about these types of topics in psychology or neuroscience. I encourage you to ask questions. Maybe not to me. I'm not an expert, but I'm sure that uh, if you get your questions to me, maybe I can get those questions to people that, that can answer them for you. And with that being said, give the podcast a rating. Give the podcast a review. Even if it's a bad one, let me know what needs to improve. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Three, two, one. Daryl, how are you? How are you doing?
1: I'm just fine, thank you. Summer is here, and it's just beautiful outside.
0: Yes, it is. You're, you're a busy man these days. You're, you're doing a lot in the, in the world of psychology. Uh, one thing I want to talk to you about is savant syndrome. Uh, you are, I would say, normally for my guests, I would say that they are an expert at something. But I think in your case, you are the expert in savant syndrome.
1: I think that's probably so. Um, I've been at it 57 years now, and so that ought to give me some kind of a qualification, I guess.
0: Right. So why why don't you educate us? What is savant syndrome?
1: Well, savant syndrome is a rare but unusual uh, condition in which someone with a developmental disability, often autism, has some extraordinary... uh, ability that stands in stark contrast to overall handicap. The majority of savants are males, and the skills that generally are seen include music, art, calendar calculating, lightning calculating, and uh, uh, mechanical skills. It, if the person were not disabled, we would call them a genius, but the Underlying disability is what makes the condition so uh, striking. When you see somebody with a measured IQ of uh, 50 uh, being able to um, compose uh, his own music and lyrics and, and play anything that he's ever heard back uh, perfectly, never having had a music lesson in his life, being blind, so he can't read music, and yet has this astonishing musical ability. It just really is so striking.
0: Yes, and now in some cases, is this a born ability? Someone is born with, say, um, a certain aspect of autism, and they accompanying this is this idea of them being a savant, of them being able to be a, a very good calendar calculator. And and just for clarification for the listeners, calendar calculating is. I think uh, when you when, when maybe I would say, hey Daryl, what day was August 16th, 1964 and you would be able to tell me the day of the week that was in incredible a short amount of time is that correct?
1: That's correct. In fact, um, for some calendar calculators, that ability goes 40,000 years backwards or forwards and uh, we'll be able to tell you the day a week, the day of the week. In others, it is even more uh, astonishing. Uh, for example, George Finn, who is a calendar calculator, uh, if you ask him what years in the next 20 will Easter fall on April 4th, he would just rattle those off one after another. If you write out the equation to calculate the day of Easter, it, it takes a page or two to do that, so it's very complicated it's more than just telling you the day of the week in the past or future but for some it is being able to uh, do these uh, massive uh, calendar uh, calculations
0: Right, and and I knew a few people when I was in in elementary school a few people that I would just be able to say like what's 7,256 times 17 and they would be able to rattle off that number incredibly quickly Uh, and so these are it, it always astonished me right as a young kid I was like oh my that would, take me, that would take me 30 minutes to do on a piece of paper because I would likely make a few mistakes. And, and uh, I remember being astonished by the ability. And so going back to a previous question, is this something that's always born? Are you always born with this ability? Are you always born expressing these abilities? Or is this something that is, is just is onset at a certain stage in one's life?
1: Well, there, <clears throat> there really are three kinds of savants. One is what I call the congenital savant. These are um, children who are born and the autism shows up early in life, as does the uh, particular savant skill. The second kind of savant is what I call the acquired savant. And these are individuals, uh, ordinary persons, uh, usually young adults or even older adults who have a A head injury, a a stroke, or some kind of central nervous system disorder, including dementia, who, who suddenly, abruptly have an ability in which they neither had any interest or ability before the central nervous system incident. And the third kind of savant, what I call the sudden savant, and these are ordinary individuals who have not any particular interest or skill in any area who abruptly and suddenly have artistic music or mathematical ability, which simply was not there uh, before. These individuals do not have any central nervous system incident, but they have this epiphany moment that just suddenly gives them this ability and and understanding of the ability as well. In other words, they not only are able to uh, draw, but they understand the rules of art and things that people go to a art school to year, you know, uh, to learn in, in a whole lifetime. Right. So, um, the majority of savants are congenital savants. But I'm seeing more cases recently of. A, the acquired savant, and then more cases as well of the sudden savant, although that's a rather rare uh, condition.
0: I see. Do you think there are sudden savants out there that uh, acquire these abilities but don't necessarily realize it, right? You might have someone who who acquired an ability to to paint or to sculpt really well, but because painting and sculpting is not part of their everyday life— is it possible that people uh, develop these incredible abilities but, but don't realize it because they're not practicing it? Or is it a very apparent to them? Yeah.
1: It's, uh, it's a situation that they are usually not aware of that latent ability which uh, uh, surfaces. Now, in our cases of Sudden Savant so far, they tend to be middle-aged people where this uh, emerges suddenly. Now, there are a lot of people who uh, discover later in life some, or explore some ability later in life. Um, maybe after they retire, they, they start doing some drawing, which they've always thought they might do, or, or writing or whatever. The difference is, in the sudden savant, is that first of all, they've had no interest or ability in that area previously. And it's such a, a sudden, abrupt onset, literally overnight. And and these people are really astonished many times at that ability and, in fact, uh, have the idea that maybe they're losing their mind or maybe it's the beginning of dementia and sometimes don't even share that with people around them because they are concerned that they'll say, well, you're you know losing your mind or the beginning of Alzheimer's or whatever. So... Uh, and my, I, I just uh, had a, a blog published uh, in Scientific America on the sudden Salon.
0: Yes, I, I saw the blog. And, and as
1: I suspect, uh, as I suspected, more cases are now coming to my attention. I knew there were out there, but people will say, "Hey, this happened to me. I didn't know there was a name for it." And uh, let me tell you my story.
0: Yes, it's, it's it's incredible. It's very important to get these ideas out there to make people realize that uh, they're not alone, right? We have 7 billion people on the planet and I think that no matter what illness you find, no matter what mental illness you find, no matter what physical ailment exists, it exists in a group of people most likely and so it's it's very good that you're able to, to get that published in Scientific American and I read it. Uh, I... I had heard of you prior to the the article, but the article actually inspired me to say, "I want to sit down and talk to this man. I want to, uh, I want to get insights into this field because it is a field that is very interesting. And one of the things that interests me most about this sudden savant is the idea that there might be something inherent to the human being that enables them to not acquire these things overnight, but access them overnight, right?" It's not that these don't exist in the human brain and all of a sudden they're implanted as we sleep or as we do some activity, but it's the idea that they're always there and that we find a way somehow to tap into them. Do you agree with that?
1: I agree with that entirely, that that these abilities don't <clears throat> descend from above suddenly and newly in the brain. Uh, the thing is that uh, they are they are there. Uh, they're buried and they're dormant and uh, in some cases a uh, blow to the head may bring them to the surface, but in others they, they spontaneously um, uh, exist and, 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 and are apparent. And I guess from the very beginning of my interest in savants, which goes back a long ways, I've had the idea that this speaks to the human potential within us all. Now, we're not all little Mozarts or Beethovens, and, and uh, but within each of us, there are these, what I call, islands of genius that are, are dormant. And the reason they're dormant, perhaps, is because if, if everything uh, flooded the brain simultaneously uh, it would crash just like a, a computer would crash so that um uh, but when when they do come to the surface in in some individuals they're able to exist side by side with uh, uh, with uh, with ordinary abilities but yes the answer to your question is that uh i do believe these abilities are are dormant within us all, lifelong, Uh, they come uh, factory-installed. And in fact, the brain itself, um, you know, we don't start life with a blank disc, uh, a tabula rosa kind of thing, and, and we become what we put on that disc based on our education and experience. Uh, the fact is the brain comes loaded with a variety of software. and this has been not, this is not just my idea. this has been written about by others um, that uh, uh, numerical abilities uh, and, uh, are in- inherent. And, and so those those abilities are there. the The challenge is, if that's so, how can we tap those abilities? without having head injury, or a stroke, or having autism. And that's where my work is leading me presently.
0: I see, and, and what's, the, what's the progress on that, right? Because that would be incredible if we had some mechanism to, uh, to enhance the ability of the brain to function in a certain avenue, and I think we already have certain things that are like that, right? Uh, I think that there are different substances in the world Um, maybe a controversial one would be, like, psychedelic-type drugs, uh, that they do enhance certain areas of the brain. Now, again, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm not active in the field of psychology or neuroscience, and so a lot of what I'm speaking may be be false in some sense, and I hope that if it is, you correct me. But the idea that psychedelics can can enhance different portions of the brain, uh, I don't think that that those psychedelics institute something in your brain that wasn't there before, as we were talking about, right? I don't think that they add a substance to your brain and that substance changes fundamentally how your brain works. I think what happens is that they add a substance to your brain and that substance helps you tap into regions of your brain that you don't use very often. What do you think about that?
1: That's true. I think amphetamines are a good example. We know, for example, that amphetamines increase short-term memory. Uh, and uh, that's been demonstrated again and again. And so uh, the problem with the amphetamines, of course, is dependency you know, and side effects. But uh, we know that uh, that amphetamines increase short-term memory and that's sometimes used uh, in pilots and other uh, people. Uh, I guess caffeine is, is an example of... Um, tapping or, or making a change in our brain uh, for many people uh, in terms of being more alert and, and more active so it the, whatever the substance is it it taps a, uh, some other substance already within the brain the problem with the psychedelics is that it's sort of like using a shotgun when a rifle would do uh, it Uh, overwhelms the the central nervous system to hallucinations and all kinds of other things. Right. But it certainly uh, can uh, not So uh, what I call brain boosters, if if you go to the internet now, uh, all these ads come up for brain boosters that are herbal compounds that somebody takes and says it's, Increase their IQ and so forth. Um, right. And I think so these get a lot of brain booster.
0: I think these get the name nootropic. I think these get the name nootropics sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yes.
1: Correct. And, uh, I think that, uh, well, like I said, amphetamines are, are, are one example of brain boosters that, 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 that really has been demonstrated. So I, I think the era of, Pharmacologic brain boosting is already up, upon us, and as we do more legitimate uh, research, perhaps even with the psychedelics, we'll be able to um, have that uh, ability, um, enhanced ability, that will be tailored uh, to the effect that we're searching for without all of the side effects and other uh, kinds of things. So that, that era is already with us.
0: right? Uh, And so instead of the shotgun, right, we can use like a sniper rifle, right? We can hit the exact part of the brain that we're aiming for.
1: Correct. Right. I think we'll find that, for example, with, um, eventually with, uh, let's say with appetite suppressants, um, being able to, uh, engineer drugs that specifically uh, tap the appetite uh, centers in the brain without all kinds of other side effects that that's been the problem in the past is that you can find products that may affect brain function but uh, but, but side effects of various kinds are um, interfere but I, I think the idea of brain boosters that are really targeted is um, uh, an area that's really uh, ripe for invention right now.
0: Right. Do we know what specific areas of the brain uh, tend to be active in these savants? Uh, what And do we have like a roadmap? Do we have a specific region that we have narrowed down, that we understand this region is the cause for this sudden onset savant? but we don't quite know what's going on yet.
1: Well, uh, we have at least some some partial uh, answer to that. Uh, About 10 or 12 years ago, uh, Dr. Bruce Miller, who is a uh, neurologist in uh, San Francisco, and his colleagues uh, began to report uh, cases of persons with dementia who suddenly were artists or um, musicians or mathematicians. They eventually reported 12 cases of people with dementia. However, it was a particular, it was frontotemporal dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is dementia, but it is a generalized process. Of various areas of the brain are attacked and uh, it is a generalized uh, process. Frontotemporal dementia is a process in which the frontotemporal areas of the brain uh, are affected. In fact, it's called Pick's disease, uh, and that's after a doctor, Pick, who described it, because it picks certain areas of the brain compared to Alzheimer's, which is more generalized they put together a series of 12 cases of patients with frontotemporal dementia in which artistic abilities or musical abilities emerged. And these uh, cases were published in uh, Lancet and some other uh, professional journals. Ultimately, as I said, there were 12 cases. And what they found was that doing uh, SPECT imaging, which is a form of uh, uh, imaging that each of these individuals, the lesion was in the left anterior, anterior temporal area of the brain. And uh, what seemed to be happening is that the process affected the left anterior temporal area in terms of in a g- degenerative manner. But it released abilities elsewhere in the brain, particularly in the right hemisphere, uh, so that the new ability was not so much a stimulus as it was a uh, metering down of what's called the tyranny of the left hemisphere. Our left hemisphere tends to be much more dominant than the right hemisphere. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but is there an area particularly involved? Uh, yes, in that set of cases, it was the left anterior temporal lobe. Dr. Miller then did some imaging on an autistic, uh, artistic savant uh, boy who was a, a teenager, and it was the same area of the brain, the left anterior temporal area of the brain, that uh, was was affected in the SPECT imaging. So we know that in some savants at least the area that's most affected is the left anterior temporal lobe. Uh, Dr. Alan Snyder who is uh, in uh, Australia um, uh, picked up on that saying, okay, uh, if it's true that the left anterior temporal area is the one which is affected, what if we took a, a group of normal volunteers students who agreed to be volunteers. And what if we had a method of temporarily suspending activity in the left anterior temporal area? Would savant abilities emerge in these individuals? And so he began using what's called RTMS, uh, rapid uh, uh, transmission, um, uh, electrodes, which are placed um, externally on the skull, and they can in fact temporarily immobilize an area of the brain. These, this technique is used widely in neurology for other purposes as well. And his first experiments had to do with drawing uh, before, during, and after the uh, uh, electrical current was applied. And his first published study showed some that there was some improvement in the drawings of these individuals, but that's pretty subjective uh, and (laughs) not so sure I was convinced. More recently, uh, he's been using problem solving and some numerical problems particularly, and he's using direct current rather than uh, rapid uh, transmission. And others have uh, replicated his work so that if you take a group of normal individual students and uh, apply now direct current to the left anterior temporal area. Uh, There are some abilities that emerge in terms of which can be measured uh, in terms of problem solving. So we know that at least that is the mechanism in some patients. Now, my, my thought is that that process uh, is the underlying process in all savants and not necessarily confined to the left anterior temporal area. What happens in the acquired savant is what I call uh, the uh, uh, the three R's. There is, in a, let's say somebody has a blow to the head and they're, and, And some area, particularly most often in the left uh, hemisphere, is affected and uh, damaged. There then is the recruitment of still intact cortical ability elsewhere in the brain, often the right hemisphere. There is rewiring to that area, and there is the release of dormant potential within that particular area. So, the process uh, of uh, recruitment, uh, rewiring, and release is the process that is occurring in the salon, and um, the uh, what 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 skill or what ability in which individual uh, varies—some uh, musical, some mathematical, uh, some artistic. So there is not a single area that is responsible for all savants, but there is uh, the left anterior temporal area is uh, is particularly um, suspect. Now the other thing related to that is that, uh, in my view, um, the congenital savon and the acquired savon are both acquired savons it just varies as to when the central nervous system or brain damage occurred in the case of autism there is a uh, dysfunction of the brain and the same process takes place except it takes place in utero or in early childhood so in that sense um, the congenital savants and acquired from they are all, they are all acquired savants using this that that same uh, process. I don't think we're going to find a single area of the brain, like the left anterior temporal, that is uh, responsible for all of the savants. But the process of damage somewhere in the brain, with the uh, uh, recruitment. Uh, rewiring and release is the process that brings that about and I think one. Uh, so one approach uh, to accessing these varied uh, abilities is electronic uh, and uh, uh, there are, if you go to the internet now you'll find some entrepreneurs out there who are selling these uh, brain booster electrical, do-it-yourself electrical kits that will you put on before your final exams to you know, do better, but they're not, I don't think they're um, <laughs> valid. And right. Th- I think the, the, the thought behind them is valid, but I, I'm not sure that they're um, legitimately um, um, active or, or approved.
0: Right. But, but the fact that people buy into them, right? And the fact that people buy into nootropics as well shows that there is a essentially a population-wide interest in enhancing the ability of the brain. And I think that's why your research is so interesting because uh, one, of the, one of the questions I have for you is that when I picture the, the brain, right? We, earlier we were talking about software and how the software is, is innate to your being born. You know, you, you don't acquire some software, some software it is, it is with you when the computer is, is manufactured. And I picture that there's uh, different softwares in the brain. There's math, there's a reading ability, there's art, and there's all of these different sort of programs that you come with. And how I was picturing it is that you provide some sort of damage to the brain. And um, out of this box of software pops one thing, and that one thing is a, is a skill that you acquire that you're really good at. Uh, but what I now wonder, after listening to you talk, is if... The software isn't the same for everyone, right? If some of us really are born with better math software or better reading software, and so we're more likely, when we experience damage, we're more likely to, say, get better at math than we are to get better at art. Or we're better to. it's easy, easier for us to get better at music than it is to get better at literacy or something like that. Do you think that we all have the same software? Or do you think that we all have the same fundamental software but... Some software is just much better than others.
1: Well, I think that uh, when I say the brain comes loaded, uh, it's loaded differently uh, for for each of us. And uh, just like uh, music uh, runs in some families uh, or math runs in some families or athletic ability runs in some families, uh, that That's sort of determined um, in whatever way, whatever, however that is determined. That it's it's differentially um, parcelled out, and we don't all have that that same software. Which is why some uh, uh, acquired savants or congenital savants are musical, and some are artistic, and, and some are mathematical. It's interesting, though, that. Within the savants, uh, regardless of uh, congenital, acquired, or sudden that, the abilities tend to narrow down just to five or six areas. Uh, Art, music, calendar calculating, uh, lightning calculating, and what are called mechanical or visual spatial skills. And when you think of all the things in the human repertoire, it's been Interesting to me that uh, if you really go back in, in the history of savants, you'll find that there there is that same um, uh, stable of, of abilities, but it, it varies from, from person to person. So we don't all have that that same software. I'm convinced in my case, if I had a blow to the head and, and had a savant skill, it would not be mathematics. I just mm-hmm. I'm just not any good at mathematics. Uh, I am good at, at uh, mechanical uh, or visual-spatial uh, abilities, understanding how things work or taking things apart and putting them back together right. mechanically.
0: I agree with oh, you, but okay. as, it, as it applies to art, uh, I, I, ha, I am maybe the worst artist on the face of this planet or any other. I can picture a, a, a piece of art really well that I want to draw but when it comes to actually using my body, using my arms and hands and my brain to put it on a piece of paper, it is it is terrible. My ability to convey that into something is is terrible. So if I were to to have an incident like this, I, I would think I might actually want to get better at art. I might want to use it to get better at art. But sorry for interrupting you, though. I just want to oh. let the user know that uh, I am absolutely hard at art. Yeah.
1: Likewise, that's not uh, an area of mine. Yes, but but um, yeah terms of music um, my my uh, wife is a excellent musician and, and uh, two of my uh, I've got four kids and, and two of them are particularly um, gifted musically all each of them are able to uh, play the guitar or piano which I'm uh, not able to do but it um, and interestingly with um, in the case of my spouse uh, she uh, plays the piano beautifully, reading music, uh, and really doesn't play by ear. Uh, and uh, my daughter, who is also a really good musician, uh, can play by ear, but has trouble reading music. They're, they're, those are two very different musical strategies. Right. Yes. But they're
0: my wife. Uh, my but wife they is, come. I'm sorry.
1: Go ahead.
0: My wife is a a, a violinist and, and she is like your daughter In the sense that she can um, She can listen to music And uh, After a while be able to, to, to Play it on the violin very well But she's not very good At actually reading and playing simultaneously uh, She's better mm-hmm. at, at playing by ear so to speak By learning the way her hand moves Or her arm moves and her fingers move And, and replicating it over and over
1: Right and that, in terms of that, musical software, but even that is differential, uh, differentially uh, distributed, uh, in, uh, in 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 each of us.
0: Right. Uh, I wanted to to mention something to you that that is such a common saying, and I wanted to get your opinion on it and the way that it it relates to your work. It's. Commonly said, right, this is a, and and I'm not even sure if it's a myth or if it's a misinterpretation, but uh, that the average human uses only 10% of their brain. Can you explain that to us? Can you tell us if it's wrong, if it's right, and what you think? Right.
1: Uh, I think that that's true, that we use less than 10% of our brain. Uh, What proof do I have of that? Uh, there is a, uh, a a case reported in um, england of a gentleman who <coughs> um, developed a, a tick in his leg um, and uh went to the doctor to see what, what was causing that tick uh and um, they weren't able to define any particular cause but they said let's do uh let's do a, let's do a, a scan and they did and what it shows is where 80% of the brain cortex ought to be there is just cerebral spinal fluid all he has is a thin uh, layer of cortex less than 10% Uh, and the rest is cerebral, spinal fluid. He has a normal IQ. He's married. He has a family, has a job, and uh, except for this tick, which sort of persisted, he otherwise is uh, functioning normally. There are other cases. Uh, There's a case of a a woman who was an attorney who uh, was... They had migraine headaches that were uh, increasing in severity and uh, she went to the doctor and they did the CT scan. And the same, uh, there is this, this thin layer of cortex and she otherwise is an entirely normally functioning individual. Then there is the case reported more recently if you go to the internet and put in the boy without a brain mm-hmm. You'll see a story of a, a child uh, when the mother was pregnant with the child. Uh, they did the kind of ultrasound and other things that you do, and they determined that this child really central nervous system brain was was really um, not, not not very good, and actually talked about maybe terminating the pregnancy because it would be just a a vegetative child. Well, the parents decided to proceed with the pregnancy and the child was born. And he has just a a thin layer of cortex as well. The interesting thing about his case, though, is that uh, two or three years later, he's speaking He's learning, he's reading, and if you do the CT scan now, it shows that he has developed a large area of his cortex, which formerly was just cerebral spinal fluid. So not only does it confirm the fact that uh, it's possible to function normally with less than 10% of the cortex, but it also in his case demonstrates, to our surprise, really, to my surprise, like that the central nervous system is actually capable of generating uh, cortex. And uh, so, I, I have those those images. I don't I don't have the capacity to show them to you right now. But, right. But I think when you see them,
0: um, yes, I think it, I've it's
1: seen these. The
0: and I will point them. I will point the listener to the to, to the articles uh, in the description of the podcast, and also I will uh, link some of your TED talks because I saw that you showed the the images on there, and I I think they're interesting to look at. So right. I'll, I'll be sure to do that.
1: Okay, good. So I think that um, we do routinely use less than 10% of the brain capacity. And, and, um, uh, the brain is such the thing that has been most impressive to me in this whole journey that I've been on as I've just gotten more in awe of the brain and its capacity, uh, the three and a half pounds of gelatinous, um, material that we call the brain and what it can do. Uh, uh, Some time ago, there was this um, um, computer, I forgot what name they gave it, and it was taking on the world's best chess players and seeing whether the computer could do better than the chess players. Or Jeopardy! or whichever it was, I I don't recall. Um, I don't even recall who won. But I do have an image of man standing next to this whole battery of servers you know server after servers was the was the computer and here's this fellow with three and a half pounds of brain standing next to that computer and having essentially the same the same capacity so I, I think we, um, we really under so I've gotten more and more in awe of that Uh, the capacity of the brain and um, it uh, it, and it's um, it's really it's magnificent and secondly how little we really know about it one of the questions that sort of puzzles me from time to time is whether we really will ever understand the brain in its um, uh, in, a, in its, its its true infinity. For example, um, I think the brain can understand the liver ultimately, and I think the brain can understand the heart and other organs. But I don't know if the brain can transcend itself to explain itself. My feeling is that there is an inherent limitation of the of the brain to to explain itself and that's sort of a philosophical question right it's one that i've pondered from time to time
0: yes i often ponder a similar question in my field of, of astrophysics of whether or not the brain can ever possibly understand the inception of the universe right the 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 why is all of this here and how did it get here Uh, We can get really close, right? right? We can improve our understanding day by day. We can come up with models to try to explain it. But fundamentally, we can never quite understand the why. And I think that based off of what you're saying, the brain is very much that way. And I think if you go to every science, there will always be something that someone tells you, right? Whether it's like dna in biology or or whether it's different things in chemistry there's always that thing uh fundamental to the science that is 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 incredibly hard to understand and what's so important about what you do i think is that nothing could be understood if it wasn't for this organ that's inside of our skulls right Uh, Right. we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation if it wasn't for this organ that exists inside of of our skull and if you look at it, it, it truly does look useless, right? Uh, it's it doesn't look like it could do much, but it is incredible. Uh, and what makes the human brain so special? What makes the human brain so far superior than, say, the brain of a mouse or the brain of a whale, or or we could even say the brain of a dolphin, right? What's 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 different? Can you answer these sorts of questions? I don't want to. Uh, have you answer things that maybe you're not uh, well versed in? But but what makes the brain s- so different in human beings?
1: Well, I think it probably is a um, evolutionary process that um, skills that that um, are, are, that occur and then can be. Uh, improved on or discarded uh, sort of a survival of the fittest uh, kind of phenomena in the in the central nervous system which which abilities are are uh, more uh, prone to uh, to be good or healthy or life extending uh, and discarding the, of, the, of some of the others so i think it is just a an evolutionary uh, process there's a um, one of the things, other things that intrigues me about the about the brain uh, is that with autistic individuals, uh, about one percent of caregivers or parents of autistic kids report some paranormal abilities: mind reading, uh, telepathy some other kind of uh, uh, paranormal abilities. And Dr. Bernie Rimland, who did a a survey, I don't know, back in 1943 of 5,000 families of children uh, who who had autistic children, about 1% reported that their kids had some um, paranormal abilities. Um, The um, I've followed these savants and I have hundreds of in my registry and sure enough, about 1% report uh, abilities that are um, paranormal. Uh, there's a case of a girl named Nandana um, in the Middle East. Um, and if you Google Nandana, her case will come up. and, and the report was that she could read her mother's mind. And that whatever the mother was thinking, this girl was able to uh, uh, tell that. And and she actually was tested in one of the clinics to see whether that was true. And and, uh, it is true that that she was able to uh, read her mother's mind. I am familiar with the case here that I'm investigating of a girl who can read her therapist's mind. And uh, I was certainly was skeptical and I'm the last person perhaps to, to, to believe that. But if, if you see what I have seen, uh, there's no question, but that this, there is a, a, a telepathy uh, ability. And I have become curious about that. When you talk about astrophysics and quantum physics, Uh, to where I've sort of come to the conclusion that there's three levels of consciousness within us. One is our subconscious, and most everybody knows what that means in Freudian terms. And then there is our consciousness. And there is then something um, uh, beyond that uh, in uh, consciousness, which I just sort of have begun to explore and and, and to believe in. But I think there are some, the autistic individuals do have some connection with some sort of higher level consciousness. Um, Carl Jung referred to that as a collective unconscious. That's not exactly what I'm talking about, but I do believe that there is some uh, connection that autistic individuals have with, uh, with with this uh, supra
0: consciousness in in college I took a course on uh, death and dying it was a religion course and I went to a liberal arts college and so you're expected to take you know a plethora of courses that aren't necessarily related to uh, what what it is that you're studying in hopes to get a well-versed education and I took a, a course on death and dying and and all of the things you're saying what they really remind me of is the near-death experience. The the things you experience um, when you're about to die, and more importantly, the things that someone has experienced when they did die, right? If they have open-heart surgery, or if they had a fatal car crash that they were then brought back to life a few minutes later. Uh, the the idea that you have this telepathic state in your brain is uh, is really common in the literature in this specific field. People who uh, even though their heart stopped, they can tell you what was going on in the hospital room, right? Even though their heart stopped, they can tell you the the they, the maybe like the face of the EMT who rescued them, and and of course, I'm not citing actual cases, uh, but I'm citing the types of things that you might see. Have you heard about any of these? Sure. Yes,
1: I uh, have. Yeah. It's not an area that I have <clears throat> really explored but it's an area in which I'm doing more exploring because uh, and as I said I'm probably the in terms of being a a fairly conventional scientist um, getting into the uh, paranormal field is unlikely that I would venture there except seeing what I've seen and uh I haven't studied the near-death uh, phenomena as much as I have this um, and uh, the, the uh, telepathy. I, you know, I think that most of us are uh, comfortable with with the idea of, of, of telepathy in the sense that uh, <coughs> my, my wife and I are riding along um, just. Silently, and suddenly I will say, uh, You know, I, I, I was thinking about whatever I'm thinking about. I was just about to say the same thing. Now, one can say, Well, you people don't live together for a long time, and so in the same kinds of unconscious stimuli bring that to the fourth, but I've, it's beyond that. So, I, I think the idea of a thought transmission uh, does exist. Um, and, I, and I've become more convinced of that with, the, um, with some of these autistic uh, individuals. And so the idea of thought transmission and telepathy, I think is not foreign to everybody. And most everybody can cite some time when that happened. But our ability to look at that seriously I think, uh, uh, when, when I, <clears throat> when I start, uh, writing about this, <clears throat> or even speaking about it, uh, I'm, <laughs> people think, you know, Trefford's go off the rails now, uh, he's, um, uh, this is, uh, not a, an area of legitimate inquiry, but I, I think that it is. And so this whole area of, um, ultra-consciousness. Uh, we talked before about the, the psychedelics and, and some of those other things. I think that's an area of a frontier area, that area that really does deserve some legitimate inquiry at the present time.
0: Yes, I think there are a lot of things like that in, in all avenues of science that have, <clears throat> have a stigma about them, and because of that stigma, they're not explored enough, and and this is one of those things, I think. I think that the and also the growing role of, of psychedelics in, in therapy, in psychological therapy, and in treatments of like PTSD and other things like that, these are avenues of study that really carry with them a stigma, and it can be really harmful for a, a young person who's just starting their career to invest in one of these areas. It can be harmful for their entire career because people won't take them serious. But I do think that, that this is why the scientific institution exists. It's because we need to explore these things, right? Even if they make you uncomfortable, even if you think they're stupid, even if you think they're bullshit, it's important to actually look at them. Because if we don't look at them and we just discredit them immediately, uh, then what have you actually done? You haven't done science. You've done anti-science. So I fully support uh, you moving, and in, in, not that you need my support to move in the direction, but I fully support you and, and other members of your community and my community moving in directions that might have a stigma about them, because they need to be explored as well.
1: Right. I think we tend to, uh, even with uh, <clears throat> the, the savant in, er, in early days, um, uh, back in the 60s when I Met my first response, for example, that there was a tendency, <clears throat> even in the in the media, to say, "Oh, gee whiz, look at that! Isn't that interesting?" And then get back to the more normal kinds of considerations. It sort of, uh, um, kind of like UFOs, uh, put them aside. We you know um, we can't talk about. Let's not talk about those or whatever. And there was a sort of a with savants, uh, the sort of gee whiz, isn't that interesting? And then let's get back to more ordinary kinds of things, sort of a almost a circus act uh, or a, a a freak show, if you like. And to me, when I met my first savants, it was not gee whiz, let's look at that and then let's get back to to me. It immediately triggered my curiosity uh, as to how can how can that be? It is. I mean, we we can't set it aside like it doesn't exist. Here's somebody with severe disability with incredible ability. It exists. It's real. And let's try to understand that as opposed to just uh, pushing it aside into uh, areas of of uh, kind of a circus curiosity. And I think. Um, there are areas of, um, uh, stigma that, um, that come up that, uh um, deserve, deserve investigation. For example, um, when I, uh, took my, uh, board my, my board examinations for psychiatry, one of my colleagues uh, took his boards and, and what, happens there is that uh you're presented with a with an individual with a case that you interview and and then you make up your mind as to what the diagnosis and treatment and then you're the the surveyors or the the uh people that give the certification uh approve or don't approve of what, what you've done. Um one of my colleagues was uh, presented with a patient and the patient said he said what's what brings you here to the hospital he said, well, I have these um, uh, electrodes in my head that uh, that keep telling me what to do or what not to do and so uh, and so my colleague came to the conclusion that the man had this delusion that he had electrodes in his head well <laughs> He was at Tulane University, and in fact, they had put electrodes into his head. And so he actually did have them. And at that time, (laughs) uh, there was uh, investigations going on that would allow someone to actually have an electrode placed in their head, just as we have pacemakers now for the heart. But... That research finally got shut down by the government because they were concerned about thought control. You know, what if it was possible to put an electrode in somebody's head and control their thoughts? And and the government, uh, you know, this sort of elaborate uh, concern, and so that kind of research was was really shut down. It's now it's it's alive and well again. Uh, we know, for example. Uh, treatment of some Parkinson's disease involves implanting electrodes or other uh, illnesses, uh, epilepsy. you can uh, sometimes uh, control epilepsy with with a with a brain pacemaker. So the idea of brain pacemaker is back without the government fearing thought control. And I think from that we're going uh, we'll be doing a lot more learning of how the brain works because we're actually measuring its activity, uh, rather than doing it by uh, imaging or glucose uh, or whatever, we'll, we'll actually be recording from the uh, areas of the brain itself. And I think that may give us more answers to the question that you raised earlier as to what areas are involved. So I, I think that whole area of uh, exploration, but uh, the reason I bring that up is because at that time, there was a stigma attached to that sort of research that actually shut it down and i think that 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 is a risk um, i guess at this point uh, uh it's interesting that uh, some years ago i wrote an article in the american journal of psychiatry and i reported that rimland had found that 1% of the parents and caregivers of autistic children had these paranormal activities. And there was a letter to the editor saying that, how, how dare you even publish that fact? That, you know, that, that's, that's, that, that, that's so far out. So I was criticized for re- even reporting that somebody else had reported the paranormal. Uh, and so as I venture into that area now, <laughs> I don't know what's going to but at this point in my career, I don't, I don't particularly care if people are critical of what I do.
0: Yes, that's good. it's it's like being a president in the second term, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so you you have sort of freedom over your career. It's it's you know you you know that your presidential term is is coming up, and so you're able to sort of do some things that maybe you otherwise wouldn't do if you wanted to please everyone around you. Uh, and I okay. think that's good. I think that's liberating, and I think that that will be fruitful. Uh, and I think we need someone to do it in, in every
1: avenue. Well, I'm going to – with some of these paranormal things, I'm going to begin to <clears throat> write them up and publish in the professional literature. Uh, the, the problem is when you report that and the media pounce on it, um, then the, the families are often um, really – Intimidated, uh, and um, I I saw recently about landana um, that you know they thought her mother wanted five minutes or fifteen minutes of fame. So she's reporting this. No, she reported the case because she said this this is real. This is so. Um, I want to I want to report this phenomenon, but I want to do it in the professional literature rather than. Than uh, the media. The media would love it. Uh, but um, I, that, that I think is what often ends up sort of discrediting um, the work. So I'm, uh, I'm going to be doing some of that, um, exploring that, that area a bit.
0: When I, it, along these lines of, 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 of being skeptical of work or of, of doing something that hasn't been done before. When you first got into this field of, of studying Savant Syndrome, when you first started interviewing savants, did you have a part of your brain that was skeptical a little bit? Like, uh, so, so, for example, maybe you met someone who was a, an excellent uh, calendar calculator. And before you saw them actually perform, did you think in your brain a little bit like, I don't know if when the lights are on, this person is actually going to be able to do what he says he's going to do. Did you have a little bit of doubt within you before you actually saw uh, some of these savants perform and, and do the things that they're so good
1: at? No, I didn't. And the reason I didn't was because, the uh, first of all, I had <clears throat> uh, no expectation that they were going to be able to do any of this. But when I met them, it was so um, so convincing <laughs> that there wasn't any doubt about about the legitimacy. Um, uh, I met my first savants in uh, 1962. Uh, what happened is that I I completed my training in psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin, and at that time they had what was called the career plan which said that if you agree to work for the state of Wisconsin for two years after you're trained, uh, we'll pay you a, a, a better residency stipend. They were trying to get uh, doctors uh, into the institutions and into the mental health field. This was if Kennedy's uh, were uh, much behind this. At any rate, I had, so I had two years of indentured service. And uh, <clears throat> when a, came time to assign, they assigned me to Winnebago Mental Health Institute, which was one of two state hospitals in Wisconsin. At that time, there were about 800 patients there. And about 30 of those were under 18 and they just didn't really belong on adult units. So we decided, or they decided, it was it was decided that we would start a children's unit. And I was assigned the responsibility of, of starting and running a children's unit. well, uh, there weren't any other children units around, and so I didn't have a place to look it up or learn how to do it, so I had to improvise myself uh, in terms of putting our program together. Um, and we, we gathered together about 30 uh, individuals, uh, most of whom were autistic, and some of them really severely so, uh, under 18. And uh, one lad had memorized the bus system in the city of Milwaukee. And if you told him the bus number and time of day, he would tell you what corner that bus is going by just then, and had this whole Milwaukee bus system in his uh, in his mind. A second little guy um, was mute, but if you could put a two hundred and fifty piece jigsaw puzzle on the table, picture side down, and he would put that together just from the geometric shapes uh, themselves. And then the third little guy was an expert on what happened in this day in history. And every morning I'd come on the unit and he'd say, Dr. Trevor, do you know what happened in this day in history? And I'd say no. Uh, or I used to say no, but then I'd go home, try to bone up the night before, because <laughs> I knew he was going to ask me the next day. And that was in the day of the encyclopedia. So I couldn't go to Google. But anyway, I could never you know, best him. <laughs> and so these cases were so uh, so real so convincing and so, um, I don't know, honest or whatever word to use that I, I, I just had no question that that was occurring. And that's what I, and then I would, as I began to write about it, the same thing happened as with the sudden, uh, other cases, Now, you know, people were bringing to my attention. So, uh when, when you see these individuals, um, we have a, a, a boy that we just had at the Trefford Center recently, and, and um, he uh, had, was mute. And uh, his mother, working with him, uh, discovered the, the talking tablet so that he can tap out his words rather than say his words. And he's writing these poetry and these essays that are just remarkable uh, and uh, astonishing. That, but and, and he says, you know, just because I didn't talk didn't mean I didn't have anything to say. And now, um, and so yeah, I guess the answer to your question that I these are cases are so uh, convincing and, and so uncontaminated that I, I, I don't have any skepticism. One of the uh, biggest or one of the other questions that I've been trying to explore okay if it's true that we have these islands of genius within us in different areas of expertise and in different amounts um, how do those get there? Uh, One of the things that has been uh, impressive to me with savants, especially some of them who are really very um, impaired, is that they know things they never learned. They know the rules of music. They know the rules of art. They know the rules of mathematics, and yet they've never been exposed to it. And that uh, is as big a question as how does How do we tap those islands of geniuses, how do those islands of genius get there? And I I guess my uh, conclusion is that they get there genetically through what's called genetic memory. And uh, that when we're uh, born, uh, we're imbued with not just the genes of how tall we are or how the color of our eyes or the color of our hair, but we also inherit knowledge. And uh, like the rules of music, math, or whatever. And I find when I write about that or talk about that, that there's a huge backlash, the nature, nurture argument, is that uh, some people will say, give me a bright child and give me, uh, let him, just do music and not do anything else. He's going to end up being a musical genius through nurture. And I'm saying that that nurture is good, but it's not enough. And there is this uh, nature, the uh, uh, the uh, collective or, or, or the genetic memory.
0: Right. And I've uh, heard about this I've, before in regards to phobias. Right. The idea that that uh, phobia, fear of snakes or fear of spiders or whatnot is is just that—it's genetic memory. Right. You're you're born with this uh, inherent fear of spiders. And it's because maybe, uh, you know, your ancestors somewhere along the lines were were threatened or killed by spiders in some way uh, or snakes or water swimming or, you know, what have you.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I, I've simply expanded that to, um, the, uh, uh, to the inheriting knowledge, uh, uh, as I said, knowledge of music, art, or, or math. Uh, one of the things that's been puzzling to me is that calendar calculating itself. Why, why calendar calculating? And there are ways to learn how to do that. But these are people who are simply do it and they see the number, uh, like on a screen, projected on a screen. And so that's very common in savants. And the question is why calendar calculating? And I, my own theory is, and it is just that there was a time when the calendar and the seasons really we a matter of life or death, uh, in terms of crops and, and, and famine and, and, uh, survival. And I'm wondering whether calendar calculating and goes way back to that more primitive time when, when, when the calendar mattered more than it matters now. Uh, I have no, I have no basis for that, except I think that the, uh, the, uh, Site or the or the origin of these islands of genius, I think, uh, go go back and are transmitted. Uh, but somehow the idea that uh, that we inherit knowledge uh, has touched a nerve that I didn't know was out there. When we talk about stigma, uh, that that, but uh, some of the work at Harvard by Dr. Church shows that. You can put the whole Library of Congress on a single speck of DNA. And, and he's able to demonstrate that. Uh, so there's plenty of room in DNA for, uh, to, to expand what we inherit um, beyond the, the, those physical characteristics. And I think to explain the acquired savant one has to not only explain the process, but you have to explain how how is it those are those islands of genius exist at all. So it's all of these sort of profound questions that that have intrigued me as as I've made this journey.
0: To me, it it, it only makes sense that you would inherit some memory, right? Because if we're talking about survival of the fittest. Uh, it doesn't make sense that you're only inheriting physical traits because a lot of times physical traits are not the only thing that keeps you alive, right? The ability to have long arms and thus reach uh, fruit in the trees is not necessarily always going to be the thing that keeps you alive. Sometimes it'll be something you have ingrained into your brain. The fact that when the bushes are rustling, you should run away or the fact that um, you shouldn't walk in tall grass, right? These are things that maybe seem... Uh, inherent to us that maybe seem nonsensical or rather uh, apparent is the is the word. But it is, I see that it could be a possibility that they are ingrained in you. They're in your memory. They're in your yes. biological memory, so to speak.
1: Yes. Yeah. The, uh, I use the example of uh, the uh, monarch butterfly. Uh, Every every fall, all the monarch butterflies that are in Canada make the journey to this little place in Mexico of 46 acres where all the monarchs winter. It's a beautiful migration. But somehow they know how to get from uh, somewhere in Canada to this little place in Mexico. And uh, so they, they make that journey. Well, the journey back... Mexico to Canada takes three generations. And so, that Canadian uh, monarch uh, has never made the journey from Mexico to Canada, right. but it has been made by three of his or her predecessors and imprinted like a GPS. And so in Animal Kingdom, where we see instincts that are really quite complicated um, that the idea of that kind of memory, uh, instinctive memory being there, is not. Uh, you know, we we, ex- we accept that and are not surprised by some of the instincts in the animal kingdom. And I'm simply broadening that to the, the instincts uh, that we have uh, in uh, in our in in, in the human. Species and that those are uh, those are transmitted uh, uh, genetically. And I think we we haven't uh, the whole field of genetics uh, has come much more alive now with uh, uh, epigenetics, which means that we can actually change our um, our evolution. In our genetics, based on epigenetics, which takes us back to your um, question about, um, you know, how how is it possible that our brain is much more sophisticated than others? I, I think it, uh, it it is modified uh, epigenetically. So we're sort of simultaneously studying. Genetics, epigenetics, astrophysics, um, uh, um, quantum physics, and and uh, all these things simultaneously, which to me are kind of embodied in the cell, and it gets a little overwhelming at times.
0: Yeah, I imagine. Uh, I I had a a question for you that that I thought about uh, when I started reading some of the stuff you do and. Uh, what came to my mind immediately was the idea of a flow state, right? This state that you end in, and I'm not sure of the exact uh, the way a psychologist would describe it, but I would describe it as a state that I enter into where my brain seems to be operating on a level that is is above its normal operating capacity. Uh, so like this will happen when I'm maybe trying to solve a, a math problem or a physics problem or I'm uh, coding something. I will have these periods of intense efficiency where I have a increased understanding of the thing I'm doing. And this increased understanding only lasts for a short period, and then I go back to the normal struggle that I, I go through. And I'm curious, are these flow states in any way related to the idea of a savant except the savant is just able to remain in them?
1: Yeah, interesting question. I hadn't thought of that in quite those terms. I, um, it, it, It's clear that when we talk about uh, levels of, of consciousness that uh, we experience different levels uh, of of uh, Ability, or, or intuition, or creativity, or insight—some days are much better than others in that regard. And it, to me, it's like the zone that athletes get into. Yes. Uh, uh, sometimes I know I uh, I used to play basketball, and we have a little gym in our house where I still. Sometimes with the, with the boys here, but and there are some days when I nothing goes through the basket, and there are other days where everything I throw up there goes through the basket, and it, it's um, uh, it's interesting that when I was at Winnebago, one of our boys, one of our kids, made free throws. Uh, his savant skill was free throws because he would put his feet in exactly the same place hold the ball in exactly the same way and since the fixed trajectory every time it would, it would go through. It was sort of like he was in a perpetual zone, so to speak. And that's sort of what you're describing, I think. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that as um, um, Savant's being in a perpetual zone, but I think it, it makes some sense in that they are I also know, for example, with basketball, if, um, if I'm making free throws, um, depends on the circumstance. Uh, if it's a, an important free throw or one that I, you know, I, I put emotion or anxiety or on top of it, I'm less likely or to make the free throw. Um, so that those kinds of distractions interfere with what otherwise might be a zone. So, it, it may be that, as I said, I haven't thought about it in that term, but that the savant being more per, perpetually in the, in the zone uh, makes makes sense. Now, um, I mentioned Dr. Alan Snyder before, who is uh, uh, the electronic guru of, of brain boosting. Um, uh, he says and I, and I agree that what happens with the Samad, uh in terms of brain function is that they are there is impairment of some of the higher circuitry leaving aside left hemisphere and right hemisphere there is an impairment in, in terms of the lower level and higher level circuitry uh, lower level circuitry is habit memory. Uh, for example, if I drive from here to Chicago, I know the route on the freeway, and, and sometimes when I get to Chicago, I can't remember going through a scene because I did all of this just automatically.
0: Yes, that uh, happens to um, me almost every time just, I drive.
1: Right. Now, um... That's lower level or, or habit memory, higher memory circuitry is the kind of thing that we use most of the time. Where, with that you and I are using, as we scan our cortex as in, uh, and bring forth whatever thoughts we have. Um, and so, Dr. Snyder believes, and I and I agree that, in addition to the left and right hemisphere dysfunction in savants, there is a there is a dysfunction between higher level and lower level circuitry. The savant tends to use lower level circuitry, which is uh, direct and uh, uh, compared to, to, to higher level. And that accounts for some of the, um, what, what I think we're talking about, or could talk about it, the zone uh, behavior. Uh, so I, I think that the uh, the Savant is much more limited memory-wise to a lower level uh, habit memory compared to higher level circuitry, which is much more uh, uh, searching and, and uh, kind of Google-like and so forth. So I th- it may be that uh, that... That may account for some of what I'm calling a zone that, that
0: that we're in. Right. Okay. Now I have one question before we before we wrap up because this is my favorite my favorite part of your work is listening to the stories you have to tell. Right. Is listening to the experiences that you've had in this field, uh, the amazing things that you've seen, and so I want to know what is the most. Odd, I don't want to call it odd because I don't want to uh, vilify the individual, right? I don't want to make them feel like they should be uh, embarrassed anyway. But what is the most remarkable thing that you've ever seen, the most remarkable story you've ever encountered in this field?
1: Well, um, I think it depends a little bit on what, what area of expertise we're talking about. For example, I think uh, Stephen Wiltshire uh, in the artist area, his ability to fly above Rome for 45 minutes in a helicopter and then spending the next five days reconstructing what he saw brick by brick and window by window uh, is is the most um Uh, most impressive art which I don't think has has ever been surpassed. In terms of music, I think it's Leslie Lemke that I've worked with here uh, for many years now uh, who at age 14 never having had a piano lesson in his life and being blind so he can't read music I happened to hear a, uh, a theme song to the movie Sincerely Yours, which is Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto at age at age 14. Uh, he and his parents watched that movie. He listened because he's blind. But uh, about two in the morning May, his mom got up because she heard some music. And she thought they left the television on. And there was Leslie playing Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto from beginning to end, never having heard it before and never having had a music lesson before. And now he went from this ability to recollect anything that he's heard um, magnificently and correctly to being able to improvise and more recently being able to compose not only the songs but the lyrics, uh, with a measured IQ of 58, uh, so musically he's the most uh, remarkable uh, savant. I think, in terms of the person, the one savant that that really is um, most most impressive to me is Kim Peek, uh, who was the inspiration for the movie Rain Man. Uh, Kim Peek has memorized several thousand books. And by that, I mean uh, page numbers and all. Uh, he reads a book. He reads one eye with the left eye, one page with the left eye and the other page with the right eye. So when he reads a book is he's, he's turning the pages very quickly and immediately goes to his hard drive. And he can recall that. And I, I don't think I've ever seen a person who will surpass Kim memory uh, in whatever area you want to inquest him about, he would be able to uh, philosophy, religion, uh, architecture, geology, this this tremendous fund of knowledge. But what happened as he got older, uh, he began to tap into this fund of knowledge in a Google-like fashion instead of just having these silos of information that stand next to each other, but didn't really cross over, he began to put those together in a Google-like fashion, which uh, many times I didn't understand or his dad didn't understand because they were so uh, remarkable, sort of of a, a higher level of intelligence and, uh, uh, For example, I asked him one time, um, what do you know about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? And he said, Churchill. And I said, Kim, I don't understand. He said, well, da-da-da-dum, in Morse code is for the letter V. And Churchill was always flashing the letter V. And uh, many other examples of this uh, sort of super intelligence. Uh, I asked him, what do you know about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? And he says 1410 Front Street. And I said, I don't get it. And he said, that's the place where Lincoln stayed that night before in Gettysburg before he gave his famous speech. So that was his Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And um, many, many, many more of these. So I, uh, unfortunately, Kim... Passed away about three or four years ago, but uh, he is the the Mount Everest of savants, as far as I'm concerned. And I can, well, the more time I got to spend the, with him as he got older, uh, simply baffling, at, as well as uh, if there is a super intelligence, uh, he was an example of it.
0: That is incredible. Have you ever seen a, a savant go backwards? A savant who sort of loses their skill uh, or their ability to do a specific thing?
1: Uh, not really. And I, I know that that is a concern. People will talk about uh, losing. The ability. And many savants, especially higher functioning ones, are concerned that uh, and, and the acquired savants, too, are concerned about, am I going to lose this ability as quickly as I as it came? I haven't seen that. Uh, sometimes savants will tire a little bit of their area of expertise and, and shift over to something else. There's a, a savant in Australia, his name is uh, Trevor Tao, and uh, I learned about him years ago when he was a musical savant, and, uh, and a remarkable one. Uh, he went on to chess and became an international chess champion. And then he went on to uh, mathematics and got his PhD in UCLA uh, in mathematics. So, uh, he still has his musical abilities, but they're they're not as polished as they were because he hasn't been using them. But in terms of losing it, no. Um, that concern stems from a case of uh, a girl by the name of Nadia and there was a book some years ago about Nadia who was a, a young girl with with tremendous artistic abilities um, and really sensational abilities just as a child and uh, got some recognition of that because of those abilities uh, she was sent away to school to learn language and, and communication skills. And um, when, when they put her in that kind of a learning environment, she did lose her ability to draw. And so the case of Nadia is often cited as the, the one that uh, where uh, people lose that ability. But that has not been in my experience with the savants that I know. Uh, they are able to. The fact that they are really good at what they do doesn't mean they can't get better with teaching or nurturing. Uh, but I haven't seen anywhere where they've lost the ability. You know, maybe there's are some out there, but I that that is that's not been a a phenomenon that I've seen.
0: I see. Yes. It, it, this this field of research is is so interesting to me and, it, and it's interesting to me fundamentally because I'm interested in the brain I'm interested in humans, I'm interested in the nature of consciousness right? and, and I think many people share these interests so in closing uh, Daryl, why don't you uh, introduce the listener to, to the Trefford Center, what you do why you established it and, and, and how it might be able to help some people out there
1: Sure uh, Well, I had been collecting uh, all this information on savants, especially videos of savants through the last 50 years and artwork of the savants and uh, professional papers that had been written about savants. And I was keeping this all in my basement, in my man cave in the basement. And um, not very well organized, frankly. If somebody would call up and say, you know of any savants in Brazil and I'd say you know I know I, I know there is such a case but I you know I, it was not organized that I could go to that bring that or, or they said have you read this paper or do you know about this and I had all that stuff down there but it was really not very well organized and my daughter who's a librarian Joni uh, said Dad. We really need to put that stuff together as a valuable library of materials on Savant's. It's the only real library on Savant's anywhere. anywhere. And uh, so uh, she talked to and the hospital did my work. And uh, they decided uh, that there was a building on the campus of the hospital that had been a, a daycare center and it was standing empty. Okay. And so they uh, said, let's together a place that can preserve your work can share your work and can advance your work in, in Savants and so we have the uh, library of savant materials which is the most extensive library on Savants anywhere um, but another of my passions was with autism because uh, I started with autism uh, with these youngsters on the children's unit. I've been concerned about autism kind of losing its specificity and people talking about an epidemic of autism and, and that term had sort of lost its specificity. So as a physician, anywhere in medicine, the first step in treatment is to make the right diagnosis. And so I wanted a a place where we could assess children uh, and do it accurately and make the right diagnosis. And so we have, at the Trefford Center, we have this library. We also have an assessment capability to uh, separate out kids who have learning disorders from those who are autistic, from those who are hyperactive. And then we have a, a, a treatment Uh, program for youngsters with autism. We're dealing with younger and younger, uh, youngsters. We used to be treating kids who were eight, nine, or ten. Now they're two and a half, three, or four with interventions, uh, that really makes some spectacular gains. So there's the library. There's the assessment center. There is a, a, a treatment, uh, capability for, uh, children with autism as well as with other comorbid conditions, epilepsy or whatever. And then finally we have our own school um, in the, the uh, Trefford Academy it's called and it, it is basically a 3K, 4K um, program at this point that about 80% of the youngsters are ordinary kids and 20% have special needs so it's an integrated classroom. and uh, being able to see what the advantages of that are when it comes to dealing with kids with special needs. And the hospital, uh, St. Angus Hospital, uh, was recently uh, purchased by the Sisters of St. Mary and St. Louis, and um, they uh, kindly and graciously, and as part of their mission, have continued to uh, support the Trefford Center. We do have research underway as well on the Savant Syndrome uh, looking at the acquired Savant congenital Savant and now the sudden Savant and um, trying to answer some of the questions that you and I have been talking about today so it's a a place for uh, inquiry it's a place for research and it's a place for treatment and uh, I think our model of treatment, which I'm really proud of, uh, we hope to be able to uh, have in other settings. Uh, we recently received a, a grant to uh, start a charter school in a school system near here uh, for youngsters uh, or all ages with special needs. Um, so we're uh, a center of learning and a center of research. And a center that simply does a lot of good things. I see. Well. And you can act if you want to learn about it, you go to www.treffordcenter.com. I've been honored and humbled by the fact that they were able to put this together, and, and it bears my name, and, and I'm really proud of what we're doing. Yes,
0: and that that can be found in the description of the video uh, to, to visit the website, so. With that being said, Darrell, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Trefford, it was great having you on. I hope to have you on again in the future. uh, Talk about some more uh, findings in the field as you you progress in different avenues. Uh, I think that you're a fascinating person studying a very fascinating subject. And with that, this is the state of the universe, and we're out.